Fools, but is wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lord, as we come to this great text in marriage in Ephesians that is more than on marriage as Paul even tells us spoiler alert I'm not even talking about marriage I'm talking about Christ in the church ultimately Lord we pray that we would have before us the lens of the gospel Jesus and his great love for his bride and that that would begin to transform our church our people our marriages and and that that would be such a change that our society would even be impacted by this gospel-centered view on marriage. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Oftentimes, what we think regarding family is more of an American phenomenon than it is a biblical one. As we spoke of last week, there's these two extremes in our culture. One extreme is a total disregard for family. And then the other extreme is making family the end all be all rather than the means to a much greater end. We would pray during this 14 week series on which we're on week four, that the Lord would shape and conform our preconceptions of marriage and family and parenting to the authority of the word of God, that we would bow our hearts before his authority. Peter Marshall was once the formal chaplain of the United States Senate. He was twice voted into that position. And he said, marriage is not a federation of two sovereign states. It is a union, domestic, social, spiritual, and physical. It is the fusion of two hearts, The coming together of two tributaries, which coming together after marriage will flow together in the same direction, carrying the same burdens of responsibility and obligation. Marriage is a oneness, divine and indivisible. You see, when God created man and woman, he said it's not good that man should be alone. So out of Adam's side, he fashioned a suitable and comparable help meet, a counterpart, if you will. And God made his intention for marriage abundantly clear. There was to be intimacy, divine and indivisible. There's a companionate oneness to the two. There's a mystery in marriage, but it's very real. 
1970 to 1974, we saw a number of divorce quadrupling. Something happened in our history back in the 70s that caused marriage to be fragmented in an extreme manner. In fact, in that period, it began something that we're seeing happening today in our families where the fastest growing marital category in the United States census is divorced persons. Professor Lawrence Stone is known to be a distinguished historian on families from Princeton University. And he wrote, the scale of marital breakdown in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent that I know of. There has been nothing like it in the last 2,000 years and probably longer. What is that? What is that that causes the secular divorce rate to be 50%? Think about that. The weddings that you go to this year, 50% of them will end up in divorce. When I look at my history of of weddings that I've performed. Guess what the rate is of divorce among the weddings that I've performed? About 50%. I'm 35 years old. I've been a pastor for eight years. I've been a a pastor marrying people for 16 years, and I've got a 50% divorce rate. That's with or without pre-marriage counseling. Divorce, the fastest growing marital category. Newsweek had an article that said, saving the family. And it wrote that the home is the most dangerous place to be outside of riots and war. (laughs) Amen, man. Should have been at the Rogers home this weekend. 30% of families experience some kind of domestic violence. There are uh, 2 million cases every year of lethal weapon use within families. 20% of police officers killed in the line of duty are killed answering calls regarding family fights. Six to 15 million women are battered each year in the United States. One police officer quoted saying, this is probably the highest unreported crime in the country. And so to quote our formal chaplain, divine and indivisible, companionship and oneness. What has happened? What has happened since the beginning of Genesis where God created saying something's it's good, but something's missing and that's not good. He needs a help meet comparable to him. And then fast forward about 6,000 years and get him out of here. You know, oh, Something went wrong. Something went horribly wrong. Over here, God blesses the new couple. He he presents the bride to Adam, and Adam writes a song about it. There's romance. And if there was ever a couple who had a chance to make it, it was Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. So what happened? They fell. (laughs) They fell into sin and they lost their created innocence, which was not theirs alone to lose. Adam was our federal head. And in blowing it, he was the ultimate atom bomb. He ruined it for all of us. Romans tells us through one man's sin, death spread to all. Their sin plunged the entire race into fallenness. Consequently, what happened in the relationships following? We've got Adam and Eve running from God. We've got Adam and Eve blaming each other. They have offspring and one cruelly murders his younger brother This isn't just modern local news. This is something that happened back then. It was pre-Dark Knight trilogy, uh, pre-Grand Theft Auto. All right, this stuff was happening pre-cable TV. 
This stuff was happening in the beginning where mom and dad had been created innocent, but fell. And then Adam and Eve began to reproduce after their own kind. And so then you can just do a simple reading through the rest of Genesis and it will show fall after fall after fall of the devastating consequences of sin in the human family. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his sons have a rift in their relationship due to drunkenness and some kind of crazy sexual indiscretion. Fall. Abraham and his nephew Lot have an impasse that makes them separate from one another. Fall. Genesis 16. We have uh, Abraham abdicate his responsibility and heed the counsel of his wife going into her handmaiden for procreative purposes. Fall. Or nowadays we would say fail, right? That was after the past with his nephew. And then before Genesis 19, where Lot offers his own daughters to homosexuals of Sodom for sexual exploitation. Fall. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham, fearing for his life, deceitfully refers to Sarah, his wife, as his sister, putting her sexual purity in danger. Fall. Genesis 22, there's a rift in the family between Sarah and Hagar, the two women from whom Abraham produced children. Another fall. Genesis 26, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Isaac tries to pass off Rebekah as his sister to King Abimelech. Epic fail. In Genesis 27, Jacob, in team with his mother, deceives his father to steal his brother's firstborn family blessing. More of the fall. Esau, in turn, tries to kill his younger brother, who is a deceiver at best. Fall. In Genesis 29, Jacob's uncle Laban deceives his nephew only to turn around in the next chapter and be outdone by Jacob, who gets even with his uncle. Do I need to say it? Fall. In Genesis chapter 34, the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, is raped and her father does nothing about it. Fall. Then we have her brothers retaliate and slaughter every male in the entire town and burn and pillage their wealth. I'll let you say it. All right. Uh, then we have uh, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, commit incest with one of his father's wives, Bilhah. Then in Genesis 37, Jacob's sons have sibling rivalry, so they plot to kill the younger brother, Joseph, who's their father, who is their father's favorite, which is a problem in and of itself. They sell him into slavery, return home to cruelly misrepresent Joseph's death to their father. In Genesis 38, Jacob's son Judah impregnates his own daughter-in-law Tamar, but is surprised by this news because he thought that he had visited a prostitute. (laughs) With the grave of the patriarch Jacob still warm, the brothers start their lying and scheming all over again. And you might just say, all of this is in the Bible? Nope. All of this is in the first book of the Bible. It makes desperate housewives look pretty modest. And you might even say it makes my family look pretty good. What happened to God's original design? What happened to the glory of Genesis chapter 2? It was shattered by sin. A sin that those that don't know any better might actually say, didn't even seem like that big of a deal. Eating a piece of fruit. Now, in the grand scheme of things, we know the sin is the sin, and we know what that sin really represented. Knowing better than God, saying no to God, and making myself God. That's really what was happening there. But when we look at some of our other sins, we can only imagine the peril that it brings into our own family life. We are sinners. That's the bad news this morning, guys. You are a sinner. 
and your counselor and your teacher and your mommy and daddy want to pat you on the back and dust off your buns and just tell you you're a good little boy with a bright future, but the truth is you're a filthy sinner. And without Jesus' blood and righteousness, you're on the fast track to hell. That's the bad news. Just let me put that out there. There will be good news. But you need to realize it. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, he's a sinner, she's a sinner. Realize it. We fight and lie and cheat and manipulate and dispute and distrust. We lust for our own way. We are thoughtless, insensitive, self-serving, self-promoting, self-asserting, self-absorbed. And you say, how do you know this about me? And I say, it takes one to know one. I'm a pretty selfish guy, which is at the root of these sins and wars. Sin. Inheriting this from our first parents. In the last few teachings in this gospel family series, we've seen that marriage as a foundation is designed by God. In creation, he very thoughtfully created husbands and wives. He very thoughtfully determined who should marry who and how long they should be married and what that should look like. It's his design foundationally. And then the next week we looked at ultimately it's for his glory. Last week on Mother's Day, we looked at our marriage and our families exist for God. And for his glory, not ultimately our own self-fulfillment. Example, living out the American dream. And this week in Ephesians chapter 5, we want to look at the Holy Spirit filling up and overflowing our marriages and our families. And that that in and of itself even gives marriage the high worth and dignity and value. We're going to fly over these verses we read from Ephesians 5 at 30,000 feet, where we're going to see the glory of the original marriage with Adam and Eve pre-fall can be approximated through the grace of the gospel and its spirit empowering. You go out to the library or to the local Christian bookstore and read every book there is to read about the family and attend every conference on family. But at the end of the day, we're still fallen sons of daughters of Adam and Eve. And in and of self, we lack the power to live out God's design. We're going to look at the family in light of the gospel. We want to look that it's not by our flesh and by our own gumption that we're going to bring healing to our relationships. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says to the Galatians, I want to know this from you only. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that now you think you're going to be made perfect by the flesh? We want to remember in this series focused on the gospel that it's not going to be our own flesh and our own pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps that's going to bring life and light into our home. The last thing we need is more techniques and methods. What we really need is the transformating power of the gospel. It's the only way that we're going to overcome the effects of the fall. Last thing we need is more information. The problem isn't that we lack information or data. There's plenty of that The problem is that we have the lack of power to carry out all that we've been learning. Tim Savage wrote in his book, No Ordinary Marriage, the best human advice may bring momentary relief, but it can never produce a sustained marital ascent. We need more, much more. We need a miracle of transformation at the core of our beings. A miracle that only Christ can perform. The new covenant in Jesus Christ that we celebrated and remembered today with communion. It addresses our weakness. This new covenant was not written on cold, dead stones, but it was written on our hearts. It's distinguished by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. 
The power of the Spirit is what we need in our marriages, in our parenting, in our romance. Savage said again, the power of the Spirit. This point can hardly be stressed enough. Marital partnership needs renewing by a supernatural work of God's Spirit. He told a story of recently a friend whose marriage was at the point of collapse returned from the therapist with an optimistic report. He said, the counselor really made me feel better about myself. That should automatically be like, although the words were encouraging on one level, they were the equivalent of spreading icing on a moldy cake. While tasty, it camouflages a deeper problem. While putting my friend in touch with her feelings, it does not put her in touch with her God. While making her feel good about herself, it does not, in fact, make her good. It is only when we confess the spiritual nature of our marital problems, the internal defect at the core of our beings, that we will yearn for the supernatural assistance offered by Christ. We need a makeover of our inmost hearts, a coronary transformation by the healing touch of the Spirit of Christ. That is something that we see from Genesis through Revelation, that wherever you have men and women trying to do it in and of their own strength, as much of a motivational speech that they have at the beginning of it, they will peter out and grow cold and ultimately fall short. As Romans 8 says, in what the law could not do because it was weak in its flesh, God did by sending his son. Ezekiel eleven nineteen speaks of the victory that comes through spiritual transformation. It's what Ezekiel and Jeremiah would both prophesy of as calling it the new covenant, where the Lord said, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is a radical transformation. This is something that happens not by the hand of a worldly skilled surgeon but by the spirit of God where he comes in and he takes out, Jeremiah puts it that cold heart of stone that cannot know God. We've heard the term hard hearted, right? That's the epitome of hard hearted. The spirit takes that hard heart out and puts in a new heart of flesh that can beat and pump and know God. And Jeremiah says it no longer will a man have to say to his neighbor, know God. Because they will know God in a deep and personal, intimate way. And I ask you here today, you've got problems. And man, maybe you're newly married or maybe you're going to get married or maybe you're looking back in your life and you can go, man, marriage is just one of those things that problems become evident. Marriage can be one of the most difficult things in life. And direct proportion is to it can also be one of the most wonderful, beautiful things in life. And as if that doesn't refine you down enough, parenting. There's some gray hairs in this head from the last uh, 10 years I've been a parent. They're starting to come in. You can't see them from where you're at, but it's because, man, parenting can be difficult. In interpersonal relationships, there's something that can't be remedied by simply trying harder on the outside. There's something that's got to change on my inside and on your inside so that we can live this life out together in the way God intended it. Dave Harvey wrote a book, and I love the title of it. I mean, you almost don't need to read the book. It's just the title's good enough. When Sinners Say, I Do. When sinners say, I do, Dave Harvey, maybe related to Paul Harvey, I don't know. He'll tell us the rest of the story. Dave Harvey writes, the benefits of the new birth. That's what we're talking about is having the heart of stone taken out and having the spirit of God put in a new heart of flesh that beats and pumps and knows God. That's the new birth. Harvey says, the benefits of the new birth, the pardon of our sins and our relationship with Christ, they do not remove us from the battle 
Instead, they guarantee our victory. Informed by the word of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can make your battles fewer, shorter, and not merely less harmful, but actually redemptive, allowing your marriage to steadily grow in sweetness. In other words, when we have a gospel-shaped view of marriage and family and sin and being born again and sanctification and redemption and glory, then we find that man, the stuff that we're going through in our home can actually be something that is sanctifying and redemptive and causes growth in our home. And so here in Ephesians chapter 5 where the marriage subject comes up in verse 22, the Apostle Paul links the power of the Holy Spirit with the command for wives to submit. Look in your Bible, and I hope you have a Bible. I know we've got everything up on the screen, but will you just open your Bible up with me? Because we're going to kind of walk back, and it'll be most helpful for you to have the text in front of you. Ephesians 5.22. We've got this verse that for the next four weeks, we're going to dissect, all right? Four weeks on submission. And the first read of it is hated by the world. Wives, submit to your own husbands. You can just feel people tense up in the room and just brows furrow and lips tighten. And I don't know how I feel. Even as Christians, even as a pastor, I'm like, dare I read this verse twice in one Sunday? It's probably going to be three times by the time the, the day's over. But now we read it. I'll let it mull in your mind for a second. There's a big problem here. When you read the original text, The word submit does not appear in the original text. Let's have the women just start with a slow clap right now. I knew it. I knew it. This whole time, I knew that not my God, my God would not make me. Mm -mm. Preach it, brother. All of a sudden, the wives are like, I can listen to this. Okay, yeah. Submit is not in the original text. I think we're done here. This is how you grow churches. Okay. (laughs) The original text reads, wives to your husbands. That's it. Wives to your husbands. And now you've got to fill in the blanks. Now you don't get to just fill in the blanks with whatever you want. Sorry. Context is king. All right. So, well, then what is it? All right. Hopefully it's something better than submit. If it's been implied, then where has it been implied from? So we're looking for a verb here. I need a verb, Anna. Go backwards. Let's go back one. Verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Okay. Now, This word submit is a participle which does not stand on its own, but is connected to something else. This is so fun, isn't it? We are looking for a main verb. What is this submitting connected to? So we go backwards to find a main verb. There's nothing in verse 20. There's nothing in verse 19. And in 18, are you walking back with me looking at your Bible? I don't even know what a verb is. Me neither. I like nouns, person, place, or thing. Verbs, we're looking for an action, all right? Verse 18 is where we find two verbs. First one, stop getting drunk with wine where there's debauchery, recklessness, and wastefulness. Okay? So does that fit? Wives, stop getting drunk with wine where there's debauchery to your husbands. It doesn't fit. But the next verb we see is be filled continually with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a feeling. You either have him or you don't. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, verse 19 tells us 
It's speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we went clear back to this main verb of of being filled with the Spirit. And by being filled with the Spirit, we're going to be doing things. We are going to be speaking to one another. I know you hate that, but that's church life. So while you're here, stick around a little bit. Visit and speak and encourage one another because if you're spirit filled, that's something you'll do. Then there will be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs or worship. There's an internal compulsion in the spirit filled person to worship God. They want to worship and praise God. Verse 20 says that we will be giving thanks Spirit-filled person gives thanks. In fact, the New Testament tells us that someone who is unthankful is actually unregenerate. They are not born again. And then verse 21, the spirit-filled person will be submitting to one another in the fear of God. They'll be submitting to one another. And so one of the marks of being spirit-filled and controlled by God is submission. Now notice we haven't even got to verse 22 yet about wives or husbands. This goes for all of us. Every single spirit-filled Christian will walk in submission. And I would ask you today, who are you in submission to? Who do you submit to? How about within the spiritual world? Who are you in submission to? When the people don't want to submit to their employer or their pastor or their government or their parents, there is a lack of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life. Colossians chapter 3 is a nearly identical family chapter as Ephesians chapter 5. And Colossians progresses by speaking of men and women of faith who know the truth and are reconciled and have received Jesus Christ as Lord. And it speaks of how a Christian is a new creation and is radically different as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, and even as a child. People look at the instructions of wives submit to your own husbands or even husbands love your own wives and they ask, how can I ever do that? Do you even know him or do you even know her? Well, you'll never do it by just reading about it and then trying really hard to do it. It just won't happen and it just won't last. Show me the horse whisperer And tell me to whisper sweet nothings into a wild stallion's ear as I break it, and I can never do it. But give me the spirit of Robert Redford inside myself, and have him come and live inside me, and I'll get the job done. I need to be a different man. Show me the life of Jesus Christ, and tell me to live a life like that, and I can never do it. But place the spirit of Christ in me and you will see radical actions taking place. Colossians chapter 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. It's almost parallel to what we just read in Ephesians 5. We need to be renewed on the inside by the word of God as it dwells within us. Obedience to instruction for family life can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So before you get to husbands and wives, man, you got to get clear back to verse 18 of our text. Where you will see that husbands The reason you're acting the way that you do, where you are harsh, angry, have difficulty in loving your wife, it's because you're not living in a spirit-filled, word-indwelt life. 
And wives, the reason that it's so easy to live according to the view of the world, not respecting your husband, is because you are not living in spirit-filled, word-indwelt lives. What is asked of Christian wives? To voluntarily submit to her husband. This is an exhortation given to wives, and we're going to look at it over the next three weeks after today. We're going to take a lot of time because it has been abused along with the women. John Calvin says, nothing is more contrary to the human spirit than for one to submit to another. Whether it's just us within a church body or whether it's children to parents or whether it's uh, um, uh, a husband to a wife. By nature, man does not submit. He is independent. He chooses to do his own thing. That's what makes submission. It's got to be a supernatural activity. Alistair Begg said, we have the pattern, but we cannot see through it. We cannot see it through. The pattern is not given in isolation from the power. And so we've got the books on our shelf. Love and respect. And man, as you're reading a book, you'll oftentimes see the pattern. Here's the thing to do. But oftentimes, where's the power? I can't do this. We've got to have the power. And the cool thing is, is that in the Bible, when there's these wonderful books on marriage or chapters on marriage, it doesn't just say, hey, go do this. It says, hey, this is what you've got to do, but you can't do it on your own. But here's where you can tap in and find the power. Newsflash, it's not deep within yourself. It's someone else coming inside and changing you from the inside out. Some wives are more talented. They're more intelligent. They're more spiritually mature. They have more instinctive leadership qualities than their husbands. So how is it possible for a woman to place herself in this position of submission? It's possible through the means of the new covenant provision of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Submission has been purchased for you in the redemptive work of the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he himself submitted himself to the Father to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And that same life is made available inside you through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Let's look at 1 Peter 3.1 where we see submission understood in light of the relation to the love of Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 1. Wives, likewise, and please flip that. This is the same type of thing as Ephesians. We're going to walk back a little bit. So 1 Peter 3, 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of of their wives. So incredible verse here about wives submitting to husbands, even when they don't really deserve submission, even when they're not like walking with Christ, even when they need repentance in their life, Peter tells them it's time to submit to them for a purpose of even winning them over. But there's something here in this verse that tells us this verse doesn't stand alone. And it's that second word, likewise. Likewise, like what? Go back. Go back a chapter. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husband. Are you catching that? Wives, be submissive. Well, you don't know what he's like. I mean, we do have an idea, actually. Because <laughs> I am one, so I can tell you exactly how he is. But, but what do you, you don't know what I'd have to go through. I may not totally, but Jesus totally does. So let's go back a chapter and let's look at Jesus who was reviled against and he was threatened. He was ultimately murdered, but he didn't spit back and shout back and yell back. No, he submitted himself to the will of the father and he trusted the father that he is able to judge righteously. Even when these people are treating me this way. We will never begin to understand how to live out family life unless we see these things being framed under the terms of the gospel, the fall, sin, the cross, redemption, resurrection, power, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and ultimate glory. We need to spend time at the cross of Christ every day. If you'll permit me to read practically a chapter out of Paul Tripp's book, What Did You Expect?, I'm going to, whether you permit me or not, but you can get up and leave. That's okay. No, it's good. I wouldn't just do this for nothing. Listen to this. When we see worship and the power of the Holy Spirit as being central to the dignity and high worth of our home, fights, struggles, conflict are no longer big old bummers, but are actually Moments of opportunity for ministry. Have you ever thought about that? When she is acting that way, making a big deal about getting creamy peanut butter, it's like, just get the creamy peanut butter. My core group likes it. Let's have some. Pretty soon you're going to be repenting about saying that, but it was said. This is actually a moment for ministry to take place. If you minimize the heart struggle that both of you have carried into your marriage, here's what will happen. You will tend to turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. He has chosen you to be one of his regular tools of change. So he will cause you to see, hear, and experience your spouse's need for change so that you can be an agent of his or her rescue. Often in these God-given moments of ministry, rather than serving God's purpose, we get angry because somehow our spouse is in the way of what we want. This leads to the second thing that happens. The reason we turn moments of ministry into moments of anger is that we tend to personalize what is not personal. At the end of his bad day at work, your husband doesn't say to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll take my bad day out on my wife so that her day gets as wrecked as mine. No, the trouble you are experiencing is not about you directly. Yes, it is your trouble because this angry man is your husband, but what you are experiencing is not personal in terms of conscience intentionality. You are living with a sinner, so you will experience his sin. Now, when you personalize what is not personal, you tend to be adversarial in your response. When that happens, what motivates you is not the spiritual need in your spouse that God's revealed, but your spouse's offense against you, your schedule, your peace, etc. So your response is not for him. It's not a for him response, but an against him response. Rather than wanting to minister to him, what you're actually wanting to do is to get him out of your way so you can go back to whatever it was you were engaged in beforehand. Let's be honest, all of us have been there. Because we turn a moment of ministry into a moment of anger by the personalizing of what is not personal, we are adversarial in our response. And because we are, we settle for quick situational solutions that do not get to the heart of the matter. Rather than searching for ways to help, we tell the other to get a grip. We attempt to threaten them into silence, or we get angry and turn a moment of weakness into a major confrontation. 
This is one place where I think the Bible is so helpful. The world of the Bible is like your world, messy and broken. The people of the Bible are like you and your spouse, weak and failing. The situations of the Bible are like yours, complicated and unexpected. The Bible just isn't a cosmetic religious book. It will shock you with its honesty about what happens in the broken world in which we live. From the sibling homicide of Cain to the money-driven betrayal of Judas, the blood and guts of a broken world are strewn across every page. The honesty of God about the address where we all live is itself an act of love and grace. He sticks our head through the biblical peephole so we will be forced to see the world as it really is, not as we fantasize it to be. He does this so that we will be realistic in our expectations, then humbly reach out for help that he alone is able to give us. As the worship team comes on up, what's so special about the Christian marriage? The presence of of the divine person, the Holy Spirit, who's in operation in both the husband and the wife. So husbands and wife don't ever start the discussion about marriage at Ephesians 5.22 by busting out a wife's submit. Okay? Don't ever do that again. Because it puts the wife into bondage and calls her into moralism, and it divorces her from the only means by which she can fulfill these obligations, which is clear back in verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to start a discussion about marriage? Get your wife and go before the throne of God and start worshiping. And then the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see, he'll do the work By speaking to her, which is a verse only he's supposed to speak to her, wives submit to your own husbands. And wives, the Holy Spirit will begin doing the work in the husband. Husbands love your wives. It's necessary that we have the Holy Spirit in our homes and in our marriages. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Guys, we serve a God who can turn something as ugly as a crucifixion into something as beautiful as a resurrection. Certainly he's able to revive our marriages. We can apply the resurrection to our marriages today as we come before the throne of God, closing in this song. By faith, we can grip hold of his promises. I think it was a year and a half ago, we went to the Spurgeon Fellowship. I think it was, I don't know, Jeremy was with me. I can't remember who else, maybe Blaine. And, and we listened to a professor and pastor speak on what he calls the J-curve. The J-curve, it's, it's this chart that shows us that That man, in all of life, we've got these hard, dark things that happen. But for those of us that are Christians, it will never end in just a plummet. Just as Jesus was betrayed and abandoned and crucified and by his own friends and they all abandoned him in the garden, it was never the plan of God that Jesus just stayed dead in that Palestinian tomb. There was a resurrection in store. There was the sending of the Holy Spirit to empower those, those, those friends that once had abandoned him. Now those very friends, they're going to go to the farthest parts of the world and tell, tell the story of the one they had abandoned. And it's the same for your home and for your life. It may seem right now that, man, this marriage and this family and, and all of this, man, this is just down, down, down. But he has provided the way that there would be the J-curve in it. That there would be resurrection power. And that husbands, you would take the helm and being filled with the Spirit and calling your family to be filled with the Spirit. You won't even be close to approximating the original Adam and Eve in the garden until you begin to walk in the Spirit with your wife and with your kids, worshiping Him, 
reading the word. And as you read these stark commands in the scripture that tell us, don't do this, but go do this. Lord, you say to do this. And so Lord, I just, Lord, you got to help me. I can't do this. You've got to give me the power to do this. And he will give you the power. And as you do that, as you tap into his power to walk in obedience, there will be life. There will be life in your home. As we close in this song, maybe just stay seated where you're at and just give a moment for just the, the word to just sink in and just give a moment today for the that main verb of be filled with the Spirit to just ring in your head and ring in your ears. And then just as we continue to sing, maybe you would just stand as a husband or you would even lead by just grabbing your wife's hand and standing, saying, we got to stand and we got to cry out for a fresh filling of the Spirit. So that we can live this thing called marriage in a biblical God way for God's glory. That we could see these moments of conflict as moments of ministry and be God's tools for redemption in one another's life. As you just know, you need more of his presence and more of his power in your home today. Stand during this last song and just receive. Receive just more of his presence and more of his power in your life. You come during this song as an empty cup waiting to be filled. Longing for the waters from on high. Longing for the presence and power of the Spirit to fill you up. Whatever it looks like, God, we want it. Whatever it is, we need it to be continually filled with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let's respond during this last song in that way.